people will come as uh, as they come. So we're in church history. We're talking about revolutions all over the place. We've gone through the American Revolution. We've talked about the French Revolution. Now we're talking about the what's generally referred to as the Napoleonic era because he was so influential that he's changing the whole world with things. Um, and while he's doing that, everybody's kind of seeing this as a time of change and where they can get stuff out of, out of life. So, we've had this map of Europe for a little bit. It keeps shifting with things. Now it's going to shift even more. Uh, and you'll notice, like, Prussia and Russia both expanded everything. They're getting more important. Uh, everybody else is kind of getting squished somewhat to the right as, as to the right, you know, eastward as, as France is expanding. You'll also notice that, that now there's an Italian kingdom. Uh, Napoleon carved up Italy and made it a, a series of little provinces and had like the Austria-Hungarians run some of it and he ran some of it. But there's no papal states anymore. So remember those papal states that have here, been here for like ever that the Pope owned? Yeah, now all that the Pope has is this little Vatican city, which starts looking more like the map that we're familiar with now. But now you get this, this one quasi-united Italy, and that's going to become very important here in the next couple of years. Anyway, I got to talk about something in 1804. Uh, it, it doesn't directly relate to church history. I, I admit that freely. But it's an election year, and this is important. And I can't get past 1804 without talking about Aaron Burr uh, and, and, and Alexander Hamilton. Neither of these guys is particularly Christian, like, at all. But... This is important. Um, these guys really, really... Have you heard about the duel between these guys? Okay. These guys really... There's a book out, actually, where those two are lawyers. Well, I know they're both yeah. lawyers, but anyway, they actually get together on a case because they're usually battling each other. Oh, yeah. Cases. But this one, they were on the same side. Really? Yeah, and it's... Uh, I'll, I'll let you borrow it. But then... Okay. It's a mystery if those two got together because they really, really hated each other. Um, they, they, just, they were two different parties politically. They disagreed about everything. Burr had defeated Hamilton's father-in-law, uh, Philip Schuyler, in, a, in an election uh, for the Senate seat in 1791. Um, and then later, in the presidential election of 1800, uh, Democratic-Republican Thomas Jefferson beats the, the incumbent Federalist, John Adams. Okay. But by a weird quirk of the system, he got the same number of electoral college votes as his running mate, fellow Democratic-Republican Aaron Burr. So he was supposed to be the, the vice president, and as it turns out, because they got the same number of electoral college votes, it has to get thrown to the House of Representatives to decide which one of them gets to be president. Even though... Aaron Burr wasn't running for president. Jefferson was running for president. But they, they're, they're like, oh, we're still trying to figure out how we're doing this, and I think we've screwed this up. Um, anyway, so it gets thrown in the House of Representatives. They've got to try to figure out what's going on. The Federalists in the House say, well, we hate Jefferson because he just beat our candidate. So we don't want Jefferson, right? Everybody knows that. But they, they, they talk to the, to the strongest Federalist that they know. They pull Hamilton out and they say, who should we bring into office? We hate Jefferson. And Hamilton's like, yeah, but I hate Burr. So even though, even though technically you hate Jefferson, 
I'm telling you, you would hate Burr worse. So he convinced the Federalists in the House of Representatives to go for Jefferson instead of Burr, which Burr just did not appreciate. Um, especially since he, he worked fine with Jefferson. They'd had a nice campaign up to this point. But when it came down to one of you gets to be president, the other one doesn't, all of a sudden he started saying all sorts of horrible stuff about Jefferson, trying to campaign for himself at the last minute, and then lost, and is now the vice president. Think about how well you would work with somebody like that. At the last minute, they threw you under the bus because they wanted power that they never even thought that they could possibly have gotten. Yeah, Jefferson never liked him anymore after that. Well, that's kind of where I'm going with this. Jefferson and everybody, kind of. I mean, speaking of not speaking of not particularly Christian. Uh, I mean, this is Jefferson's a guy who, who who chopped up his own Bible. He made his own Bible by removing parts of the Bible he didn't like, and then he's like, "Okay, I took out all the stuff I didn't like to read." I pasted the rest of it in my Bible, and that's what I read on a daily basis. So you're a Bible reader, so long as you take out all those parts you don't like. Love, love Jefferson. Anyway, so Jefferson drops him from the 1804 ticket, and Burr is not a happy guy. He runs for governor of New York and gets out-campaigned by Hamilton again. Hamilton crosses party lines to actually campaign for a Democratic-Republican candidate against Burr. Because he's like, I really hate him that much. These two do not get along. But finally had it. He's finally done when he reads in the paper that not only did Hamilton not like him, but there's still, quote, more despicable opinion with which General Hamilton has expressed of Mr. Burr, unquote, in private. He's a, he said even worse things in private that I won't print here. So Burr's like, all right, contacts Hamilton and says, what'd you say? You need to apologize for whatever it is that you said in private. I'm not saying nothing. I'm not even saying I did say anything in private, and I'm not apologizing to you. You're a twerp. I don't like you. So, 1804, the current vice president of the United States, because he he's still in office, challenged the former secretary of the treasury to a duel. It's a different world. Wait, if I had said, if, I was going to say, if, a year ago, I would say it's a different world. After <laughs> watching some of the debates, I can kind of picture it now. <laughs> You've got big ears. Oh, daddy's money is like, really? What if he wants to be president? Congratulations. So the vice president challenges somebody to a duel. As the one challenged, Hamilton gets to fire first. It's one of those duels. It's not a turn and fire. It's, it's a turn, and the one who gets challenged gets to shoot, and the other one gets to shoot. There's different, different kinds of doing duels. Okay, it's all about it's all about honor, though. It's not about who's the quickest draw. And so Hamilton fires first, and he fires up into the air. Now, normally, if you're going to do this sort of thing, if you're not actually going to shoot the other guy, you would shoot into the ground and you're to show that I have the guts to stand before you and have you know bare my chest to you so that you can shoot me, but I I'm too cool to actually kill you. And so there's a number of duels like that that nobody ever got shot. Both of them walked up and shot to the ground and then walked away. It's just a way of saying, I'm this tough that I don't mind standing up against you. I can face a bullet. I'm that tough. Well, nobody knows exactly why he shot in the air, but he, but he did. I mean, cause like I said, usually you do that. Shoot in the air, it comes down. You could actually hit somebody. I'm not sure what his thinking was, but 
he obviously wasn't trying to shoot at Burr. Burr, however, shot at him. Burr's like, oh, I'm totally aiming at you. Shoots him straight in the ribcage. Now, some people have said that Burr just assumed he shot badly. Because you know, he didn't shoot into the ground, he shot in the air. And Burr's just like, well, you tried to kill me, you just aimed very, very badly. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Hamilton died from his injuries the next day, and Burr was charged with murder. A, because Hamilton didn't shoot him. He got to shoot first. He was bang, and then Burr shot him. And B, because Dylan's illegal. Vice President of the United States just committed murder in public. Um, so Burr ran away to South Carolina and just avoided the state of New York where the duel was until the charges eventually got dropped. Because that's what you do if you're the vice president, right? He still served out his term. He still served out his term. Murderer, vice president, still serves out his term, then moves out west to find his fortune. This is where things get a little colorful because he may have been trying to make his fortune with uh, by siding with the Spanish. Depending on whose account of this you take, he felt that war with Spain over the Texas territory is inevitable. It's, we're going to go to war with them. We're going to fight over who gets Texas. So he offered to help Spain in, uh, 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 to attack the United States and invade Washington, D.C. Uh, wrote some letters to them asking for that sort of thing in exchange for giving him rule over his own nation that would be supportive of Spain. It's an independent nation friendly towards Spain here in Texas. Lord knows that's never come up again, right? Nobody else, nobody else ever said, if you just let us have Texas, we'll be nice toward you guys. So this is going to be Berland down here. Um, strangely, the war with Spain didn't happen. And the Spanish never sent any of the material or weapons or men or anything like that that they promised, as he, he requested in his letters. But the letters did make their way back to Thomas Jefferson, who says, no, you didn't, and, and he charges Burr with treason. What was it being treason, right? Burr was acquitted because of lack of evidence because the letters were edited by the time they got back to, to Jefferson. The people who edited them said, no, this is pretty much what the letters said. You can't, you can't do that. It's like, it's like if, if you brought taped testimony of something that I said and it was clearly Sarah, and, and they go, well, I don't, think that, I don't think that's what Kevin said. And everybody goes, no, that's pretty much what he said. We just had to re-record it. Like, no. It, it's inadmissible as evidence. Well, Burr would say they never existed, and the original, the guys that edited them said, "Well, I, I kind of took myself out of those letters because I was in, implicated in the letters." But there were multiple people saying, "No, this is it. actually no. I was working with Burr. Yeah, no, I took the letters to to the Spanish envelope." I mean, so it's he's either completely innocent or guilty of sin, and I'm really not sure. But it looks like guilty of sin, no matter what. His character's been tainted by his actions, but. Wacky fun. I had to, it's an election year. I gotta I had to, to go into that. <laughs> Wacky fun. Alright. 1805. Let's get back to religious things. There's a lot of revivals going around, right? We've been talking about the Second Great Awakening. Well, 1805, there's a nativist revival led by Tenskowatwa. Not every revival in the Second Great Awakening is a Christian one. And this is something that's important to notice. We're gonna in, in about I don't know, two, three decades, we're going to come into other big religious things that other churches are being formed that aren't Christian either, but they're spinning off of Christianity. This is a nativist religion, 
revival, where all this revival push, all these camp meetings, all this kind of stuff is trickling into other religions, and they're saying, well, we can do that sort of thing too. 1805, the 85-year-old chief of the Lanape Indians died, probably from smallpox or influenza, we don't really know, but everybody assumed that he died, pardon me, because he was bewitched. Obviously, a witch came and made him sick, and he died, clearly, because he hadn't died up to this point. Very healthy guy, and then suddenly died. Well, he's 85, he got really sick. <laughs> he hadn't been dead before. Somebody did something. Anyway, clearly he'd been cursed by a witch. So this big witch hunt started, and, and you can't just blame the, the Indians, because we, we did this sort of thing too, right? Remember the whole Salem thing. So. Big witch hunt swept through the Lenape. Suspected witches are killed by the dozens. They did it a little differently than Cotton Mather did it. And it's, they, they, weren't, they weren't anywhere near as, as, uh, as nice or as procedural as they went about it. In fact, one of the leaders of the witch hunters was a guy named Blue Jacket, who was a hero of the Little Turtle War. Remember the Little Turtle War? Which I've said repeatedly was important. Yeah. So a Little Turtle was one of the, or the, the a Blue Jacket was one of the leaders here of, of the, witch, the witch hunters. Then there's a local drunk named Lala Watika. Big mouth. He makes a lot of noise, is his name. So, uh, Big Mouth. Uh, he had joined with the witch hunters for, because he liked the power. He, uh, suddenly, even though he'd been this kind of local town character with the Native Americans, all of a sudden he's got authority. Kind of like uh, when we talked about the, uh, the witch hunter general in. Uh, in England, who just kind of took it upon himself to go around and kill a bunch of witches, because he's got that kind of authority that he took on himself. Same thing. But Lalawatika had a vision that he claimed from the, was from the Great Spirit, and people began calling him the Prophet, Tenskwatawa, the one with an open mouth. So he went from big mouth, he makes a lot of noise, to no, he actually says stuff. This is important. His vision was that these witches had come from the Americans, which is what they call the white people. They were the Americans. We're, we're the Lenape. We're the people. They're the Americans. Who were themselves children of the great serpent of the sea. The great serpent is the ultimate evil, because the sea is a place of chaos and scary things. And so the great sea monster comes up and spits out. Isn't that how Americans arrived? They, they came off the sea. Sea is evil. So this great serpent spat them out onto our land, and they're horrible people. So the witch hunts quickly became Christian hunts because a lot of the, uh, of the Lenape had been converted by the Moravian missionaries who had been reaching out to them. So they're like, all right, so anybody who's guilty of witchcraft or Christianity has to die because obviously witches came from all those Christians. It's all bound together. If you're white, if, you're, if you speak English, if you're Christian, then you're a witch. Those are all the same things. They go, he was 85! He died from smallpox! No, no. Tenskwatawa uh, became famous for his visions, usually when he was extremely drunk. That's what, now, but you can't dismiss it because that's considered a valid way of reaching the spirit world. You are in an altered state, right? And when you're in an altered state, pardon me? Adelso, yeah. And, 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 and this is why so many nativist religions, and not just in the United States, but I mean, original religions in Australia, uh, you take it back to the Oracle of Delphi with the Greeks, they make use of lack of sleep or massive self-torture or hallucinogens like peyote or things like that to induce vision, visions. 
anything that you do to really mess with your biochemistry to the point where you are not perceiving the world the right way. That is what induces visions, and that is how you get in touch with the spirit world. So you have like the sun dance where, where you stick bone into your flesh and pull until it rips out and see how long you can make that happen so you're in massive pain for an extended period of time. What happens if you're in massive pain for an extended period of time? Well, yes, but your body also, your body tries its best to give you pain relief with, with things, and so you start doing all sorts of weird stuff to your own brain. So yeah, uh, the short answer is, it's not that Native, uh, apart from movies, sorry, but it's not that Native American religion is necessarily more in touch with the spirit world than Christianity. They're stoned. And there's a difference. And I, I get a little frustrated when people are, yeah, but they can change shape, you know. There are times I think I'm a water buffalo if I'm stoned enough. You know, it's like, yeah, just because they say that they're more touched doesn't mean it is. Anyway, an argument has been made that some Christian churches do the exact same thing. We create some services in a way to create ecstatic moments where we get, um, uh, we, we get a bunch of people in a very small room, we close all the doors, it gets really hot, everybody's jumping up and down, we're all chanting very simple songs repetitively over and over and over again, people are getting extremely emotional, and you have ecstatic moments where you're suddenly in touch with the spirit. Now, I'm not saying that that means that these are not in touch. I'm not saying that charismatics are not having a, a, a relationship with the Lord. What I'm saying is, is an argument can be made where you go, how is some of this functionally different than a sweat lodge in terms of how it's, it's designed to, to get people to a certain sense? Yes, he's playing with the snake. Oh, okay. Then I'm sure that nobody does it anymore. Well, multiple people have died from it. Yeah. Anyway, Tenskwadama um, became famous for his visions, and there's this is fanatical community formed around him and his war hero brother, Tecumseh. If you remember, Tecumseh was a war hero back in the Little Turtle War, right? And he's one of the guys who refused to sign the treaty, saying, I will not, I will not sign the treaty with a white man. War hero on the other side, from the American side, was now territorial governor William Henry Harrison. And he denounced Tenskwatawa as a fraud, because he's fraud. It's just like, you're a nut. But then Tenskwatawa accurately predicted that there's an eclipse coming. The sun is going to go dark. And it did. And everybody's like, well, then he's totally a prophet. And Harrison's like, nuts. You know, just, <laughs> I made a big to know about this. I still think he's a fraud, but now I can't prove it. Oh, well. All right. Um, um, nobody knows exactly, because it was within their community, and so it's hard to know. I mean, it was dozens to hundreds, depending on who you ask. 1807, while well, all this is going on over there, Robert Morrison arrives in Macau. He's born, he's born in Northumberland. He's from Great Britain. But he was a devout Presbyterianist in his youth, but then kind of became a partier as a teenager. Um, but at age 16, he was suddenly struck with this sense that I don't know if I'm saved or not. If I were to get hit by a bus tomorrow, I don't know what's going to happen. If you notice, there's been a number of guys that have become missionaries that had this sort of experience where they're like, I suddenly have no security in my salvation, and now I'm terrified. Um, uh, Martin Luther had the exact same sort of thing, where he's suddenly like, I don't know if I'm saved. So he cried out for salvation night after night after night. He's like, please save me, please save me, please save me. He had no sense of, of, of security until he finally one day felt that God 
had allowed him to be saved. Neither Calvinist nor Arminian should feel comfortable with that particular way of doing it. But fact is that he really thought God had finally worked in him, and so he devoted himself to prayer and to Bible study and ministry to the poor. And he and uh, he even learned Greek and Hebrew and Latin and theology from a local Presbyterian minister, specifically as a penitent recompense for all the crud that he did when he was a teenager. He's just like, I've got to pay God back for all that. Um, but he's living remarkably devoutly. I mean, just. While he was doing manual labor every day, he would be reading uh, commentaries on the Bible. Uh, on his weekends, he would always go and help the poor. I mean, just every waking moment trying to do his, his best to help people. 1804, uh, he, was, he realized there are people all around the world who have never heard the gospel and never had the opportunity to make the same sort of choice that he just made. So he offered his services to the non-denominational London Missionary Society as a missionary candidate. And he specifically said, that he wanted, uh, his prayer was that God would station him in that part of the world, of the missionary field, where the difficulties were the greatest, and all to, and to all human, and to all human appearances the most insurmountable. So he's like, I want to find the worst place you could possibly send me. That's where I want to go. Where it would be the hardest, because I've got a lot to burn off here. And that would be China. So he feels compelled to go to China. Now, the Chinese government really hated the English. Um, in large part because China got along with Catholic Spain and Portugal, right? They've got a trade agreement because they've been out in the, in the Far East for an extended period of time. And Spain and Portugal hate England. So China has a predisposition. What? Oh, I'm sorry. So, yeah, China has a predisposition against England. And so they made it illegal for anyone in China to teach the language to a foreigner. As a result, Morrison had to find an expatriate living in London who would teach him Chinese. Um, which he did. And so he had broken Chinese when he finally went. Arrived in Macau in 1807, the first Protestant missionary in China, and was promptly thrown out by the Catholics. Because they're like, you don't get to be a Protestant missionary in China. We've got Catholics here. We don't need Protestants. You've got enough of you people in, in Europe and the colonies. But he didn't go back to England. Instead, he went off to Canton, because there were a, a series of factories there that was allowed in that one section all these European factories. And so he passed himself off as an American because the Chinese didn't appreciate the accent well enough. And he was like speaking English, that's all that they knew. They didn't know that he was an American. So he passed himself off as an American working, looking for work and working in a factory. That's all I'm doing. I'm, it's not like I'm a missionary or anything. So he hid his language books every day and every night worked in his language books to get better and better at Chinese. Tried living like the Chinese as much as possible. He ate the same food, he dressed the same way, spoke their, their language, did all that kind of stuff, and found that it didn't work. In fact, it made everything harder, which is an interesting thing from a missionary standpoint. He found that this didn't work. The food was consistently making him sick. Part of that is because, you know, totally different spices, things like that he couldn't handle. Part of it is, um, especially at various points in, 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 in history, um, Different places in the world don't necessarily prepare their food as carefully as, say, a nice Chinese restaurant here in the United States that you might go to. And so uh, there are a couple times you've you got food poisoning, different things. It's just it's an unhealthy, an unhealthy environment unless you're used to it. It's kind of like what they talk about, you know, don't drink the water in Mexico. Well, Mexicans do it all the time. Yeah, but their systems are used to that, so that they can. You, not so much. And he found that wearing the native clothing just made him look weird to everybody. All the Europeans thought he was weird looking. 
and all the Chinese thought he was weird looking. So he's like, well, this whole point of I want to blend in, I want them to feel like I'm part of their culture, I want to be all things to all people. You go, right, you're no things to nobody. You're nothing. You're just nobody, nobody connects with you now. Which is an interesting phenomenon. I've seen other people struggle with this too, where they try to kind of downplay the, the fact that they're not from around here, and people knew that they weren't from around here. It's like, no, you've actually undermined your ministry. So, he kept running into problems where the locals, he didn't understand how things worked, some of the business practices and things, he kept getting cheated and defrauded, they stole his money, they, they conned him into to living in sub, substandard housing. It just, it just over and over and over and over again, he got cheated. He was out of money after a while and totally losing hope. He's like, I got, I got nothing. And that's when he ran across the British East India Company, who are the bad guys, right? Every time they come, they're the bad guys. What's interesting is, okay, remember, the Chinese hated the English, right? And so they refused to teach any foreigners Chinese, and they weren't particularly forthcoming about giving any Chinese interpreters to the British East India Company. So they're like, how do we, how do, we do business here? Nobody will teach us Chinese, and nobody will translate for us. We can't even get the Portuguese and the Spanish to do it for us, because they don't like us. So what do we do? The British East India Company is desperate for Europeans who speak both English and Chinese. We will pay you a ton of money if you'll just be an interpreter for us. And that's where Morrison comes along, who is out of broke and in desperate need of something that can keep him in this country. So... East India Company says, wait, you know Chinese and you know English? We will pay you a ton of money if you'll work for us. You can do anything you want on your side and, and, and side projects and stuff. We'll, you'll totally be under the protection of the East India Company as long as you interpret for us. So it's like, so I no longer have to hide the fact that I'm a missionary. I can actually openly work on language study and I can actually go be a missionary and you guys will protect me. Yeah. Win, 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 win. All the way around. Well, they didn't have to do that in India, did they? So, 1812. By then, he had produced a, a book of Chinese grammar. Uh, he, he produced a Chinese English dictionary. He also produced a translation of the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke, which is really cool. When the Portuguese bishop in Macau found out about it, he ordered all the books rounded up and burned because they're heresy. You can't do that sort of thing. In fact, he pressed the Chinese authorities to make it a capital crime. It's punishable by death to produce Christian documents in Chinese. The bishop pressed, or please, can we make it a killing offense to create Chinese Christian documents? It's wacky history. Over and over and over again we do. So Morrison continued to print them because I'm under the protection of the East India Company. You can't actually kill me. And every time the East India Company started to kind of waver on that, he's like, it's fine, I'll quit. I'll quit and go back, and you guys will be alone. I'll take all my Chinese grammar books and everything with me. You want to start from zero again? Okay, fine, we'll support you. He kept playing the Chinese government against the British East India Company. I'm super impressed by this guy. Take some guts. By the time he died in 1834, right after the East India Company lost his monopoly, um, and so he, his position got downsized anyway, by the time he had died in 1834, he produced several dictionaries. He founded a school that became Yinghua College in, in Malacca. He translated the entire Bible into common Chinese and established the beginnings of the native Chinese church that's still going on today. And you just go, 
Yes, one guy who went alone to China and had nothing but problems until the East India Company came to his rescue. <laughs> if that ain't a god thing, <laughs> that's like Pharaoh working for you. <laughs> I like Morrison. Can't help but like Morrison. Okay. Same year that that's going on, the Slave Trade Act was finally passed. Who's this? Wilberforce. William Wilberforce, been working on the abolition of slavery 20 years by the time this has come along. Little by little by little by little by little by little, always working on this. No, he doesn't look like Gillen. So, anyway, if you remember, slavery has been illegal in England proper since the Somerset case back in 1772, right? The judge said, I, I don't care, though the heavens may fall, we've got to do the right thing. No slavery in England proper. But there's slavery all throughout the rest of the British Empire. If you remember the Zong massacre back in 1788 and their, and their after effects with that, they came up with the Slave Trade Act that limited the slave trade. So it's, it's been hampered since 1788. But they keep having to do little bits by little bits. Nobody would just say, fine, let's abolish all slavery in 1772. But you keep chipping away at it, chipping away at it, chipping away at it. They had a problem, though, in 1793, um, because something happened that undermined all their efforts. The French Revolution. Now, why would this bug them? Why would this hamper everything that Wilberforce is trying to do? Anybody want to hazard a guess? A couple reasons. Okay. I think it would be a little scary. I mean, the focus, you know, okay, all the status quo status quo, the upheaval that it just happened in France. I can see how it would be like, uh, I don't know if we want to change anything because look at how bad it is there. That's, that's a large part of it. And, and so, just the fact that you go, we kind of have to deal with this. This is a big to-do. We've got to be focused on this. Let's not open any uh, the cans of worms. What are you going to say, Michael? Revolution as part of that liberty, fraternity, equality, they abolished slavery. And so it starts getting a little complicated as to what to do. Wilberforce continually starts arguing that the war is bad, we shouldn't be involved in foreign wars, we shouldn't be fighting France, we shouldn't be involved in that kind of stuff, so much so that it gets intertwined with his anti-slavery message. So anybody that is pro-war against France becomes anti-Wilberforce and thus anti-abolition. It's like you're hampering both efforts. Nobody likes it. Being anti-slavery means being pro-French now. And that's not cool. But, what era is this? For those of you that were here at the beginning, this is not the Revolutionary War, the French Revolution, we called it the... Napoleonic. Napoleonic era. Napoleon changes everything. 1802, Napoleon reestablishes slavery in the French colonies. Luckily! <laughs> now, why do I say luckily? I mean, obviously, it's not a good thing. But why do I say luckily for Wilberforce? Because then, all of a sudden, if you're, um, if you're not um, pro-French anymore, you're Yeah, suddenly being pro-slavery is being pro-French. You are, it was like those French colonies with their slaves, and you go, really? You're supporting what the French support? I mean, really, this is a time in history where it's almost like, you know, we'll have freedom fries. 
in England, it, it was this idea of anything French we now suddenly hate. The French now support slavery. Then we can't, because then that would make us pro-French. Wilberforce rushed in an, anti -ab or the, an abolitionist bill in 1804 that passed the House of Commons, but he rushed it so much and he didn't think about the timing that it was too late in the session for the House of Lords to, to debate it and, and, and pass it, and so it fizzled. Basically died in committee. It's like, no, 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 you should have just waited. It's like, no, but we need to save people now. But you didn't. By doing this, you actually undermined. I love Wilberforce. I have great respect for him and his passion. But he kept making some really boneheaded decisions. He torqued off some of the wrong people, and he kept not thinking carefully about what he was doing and when he was doing it. Because he was so passionate. Passion's good, isn't it? Yes, but passion is also the enemy of precision. And sometimes you need precision to accomplish what you're trying to accomplish. So you need them both. You need them both. And there are times where you had them both. 1806, a lawyer named James Stephen introduced a bill to undermine French trade. This is, an, this is a war bill. We need to keep, the, he found, you know, that people were saying, we need to stick it to France any way that we can. We need to stick it to France. And he's like, okay, this will really stick it to France. I got an idea. The Foreign Slave Trade Bill will ban any British subject for helping the French slave trade. You realize how much money the French make out of the slave trade? He gave all sorts of statistics. He's like, French make all this money off the slave trade. What happens if we hamper that? What happens if we don't help with that? Let's make it a crime for any British subject to help with the French slave trade. And so Bill quietly passed both houses. Will Force, none of his guys even had anything to do with this. They were just quietly listening in the background. Cutting the British slave trade by 67%, because almost all of the British slave trade was to French colonies. And so it's like, if I try to stop British slave trade, nobody's going to go for that. But if I stop that darn French slave trade, you like that. By the way, that's what most of the British slavers are doing. So two-thirds of it are gone suddenly. Which I think is interesting. It, it turned out that was all this big abolitionist trek. Stephen was working for the abolitionists, but their, their whole point was, Wilberforce was like, none of us say nothing. None of us are part of this. Don't let anybody know that this has anything to do with us. And we'll just sit here quietly in the corner while he, who hasn't technically had anything to do with us up to this point, introduces something to, to stick it to the French. And so they stuck this in the back door. By the time anybody realized that that's what had happened, it had already gotten passed. And it was like a full year before they could even go back and revisit because of the session timing. Because Stephen was all about passion and precision. And so it was all about timing. And it got passed, destroyed the, the slave trade. By the time they were able to get back to it, they're like, it's crippled. I mean, all the slavers have gone out of business. It's just, we're, we're toast. You've just gutted this particular industry. So, 1807, Prime Minister uh, Lord Grendel passed the Slave Trade Act through the House of Lords. He's like, that's going to be the tricky one. So we're starting with that one. Passed it to the House of Lords, eliminating the slave trade completely. Like, nope, let's just get rid of this. It's already crippled, it's already dead, and we know it's wrong. And then it passed in the House of Commons with a vote of 283 to 16. Huge landslide victory. Wilberforce bawled his eyes out as this was going on and got a standing ovation from everybody in the House of Commons. Booyah. Now, I should clarify, this didn't abolish slavery in the British Empire. Okay, there are no slaves in England proper, right? And now you cannot transport slaves at all. The slave trade is over. It didn't abolish slavery in British colonies. Theoretically, you can still have slaves. 
But it wasn't until the Slavery Abolition Act was passed in 1833. So again, it's all a matter of bit by bit by bit. But in 1833, they finally passed something that abolished slavery completely throughout the entire British Empire, one month after Wilberforce died. But, but, he heard that it was happening. And so this is, it, this is not something that anybody snuck through. This is something that built up to, and he, in fact, the day after, they said, this is a done thing. In a month, there will be no slavery in anywhere in any British colony in, 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 the, in the world. The next day, he finally passed away. So it was just like, Hung on until I could see it, until I could see that. Cool stuff. There are some drawbacks to the, to the passing of the Slave Trade Act. Because everything's processed, right? Everything's connected to everything, which is the whole point of this class, is that everything's connected to everything. Britain is going, great, great, great. We made a lot of money off of that, and we're not making any money now off of that. Um, we, we don't have any money coming from the slave trade now. And the French have been interfering with all of our shipping. Remember how France had taken over Egypt to specifically interfere with the British trade? And he's like, yeah, we're not making any money. So we've successfully blockaded French ports because we've got a really good navy. But Napoleon said, then I'm going to close all French ports to you. You blockaded all of our French ports. I'm going to say, fine. Flip side is true. You can't trade any to any French-controlled port in, 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 in Europe. You go, well, Fine. But France controlled most of the continent one way or another. One way of looking at it this way is pretend that France is the dark blue, French controlled areas are the normal color blue, and French dominated areas that still had to count out of France and follow what they're telling them to do are the pale blue. You're England, you can only trade with the putty colored nations like Portugal <laughs> or Ottoman controlled Turkey and, and, and Greece. You're England, what do you, you sit there and you just go, this is killing us. You trade with the Americans, that's what you do. Well, you have been, you've been trading with the Americans, and the Americans are pretty much the only thing you've got going, but the Americans are making money hand over fist trading with you and the French, because they're neutral. So, it bugs them that America is neutral and making a lot of money. And so they say, all right, um, what? Yeah. So 1807, they passed Orders and Council, which is, Think of them as like their executive orders. They didn't have to pass through uh, Parliament. The, the guys in charge just made a decision. Just goes. So passed orders in council that allowed them to impede American free trade with France. Basically, the orders say any neutral trading with England, any neutral countries trading with England are forbidden to trading with France. If you are trading with England, you don't get to trade with France. You just don't get to do it. You have to pick one or the other. And any neutral company, country ships that uh, that are, are trading with England can still be searched by England, and if you have any contraband that we think might have helped France, we'll take it. We seize it, we seize your ship, we seize your crew. Well, it, it's kind of turning the British Navy a little bit into that. It is that the British Navy now, and what constitutes contraband? It's like, well, obviously if you have any weapons, ammunition, then clearly you were trying to help France. Even if you go, well, no, they, we didn't have weapons and ammunition stored. We, we had Marines on board to protect the ships from the Barbary pirates. Well, but those are weapons and ammunition that France could have used. Therefore, we're going to seize all your cargo. Yes, because they could be. If any contraband is found, ships, the crew, everything gets seized by the British Navy. In response, France says, fine, any neutral countries trading with England are being considered British. And therefore, you can be seized by the French Navy. 
neutrality anymore. There's no such thing as a neutral nation anymore. You have to pick. Are you going to trade with England or are you going to trade with France? You have to pick one or the other. So America goes, no. I don't, no. You don't get to dictate terms to a trade partner like that. You don't get to declare that you have a monopoly on us. No, that's not fair. We refuse to do that. America is actually cranking right now. And we have the largest neutral fleet in the world. Remember only a few years ago when we had to pay off the Barbary pirates because we had no fleet? Yeah, we decided to change all that. America now has the largest neutral fleet in the entire world. Like, you don't get to dictate terms to us. Thanks in part because of the Barbary pirates. We've got to build that up. Um, and so, they said, so we said part of that is because we get to trade with both of you. So we're going to keep trading with both of you. You don't get to decide that sort of thing. It also didn't help, Britain at least, that they had built up their navy. They had this great navy, but they built more ships than they had guys to man them. Like, we've got all these awesome ships, but we're running a little bit low on, on sailors. So Britain reinstituted the practice of impressment. Remember this? Um, impressment is the legal right, and I, as I say, legal right, because the Brits decided that they had the legal right. The lawmakers said we have the legal right, therefore it's legal. For the British Navy to forcibly drag anyone whom they consider able seamen off to be part of the British Navy. Just to clunk you over the head and now you're now part of the British Navy if we think that you would work with them. Now, obviously this only works with British citizens, right? They only have the legal right to do that with British citizens, so it has nothing to do with us. But they're clunking British citizens over the head, right and left, to fill out the British Navy. Britain then also decided that it doesn't recognize naturalized citizens anywhere, specifically in America. What does that mean? If you're born in America, you're an American. If you weren't born in America, then you're a British citizen currently living in America. Which means that any British citizen that we... If you sound British, if we think you sound British, if you have a British-sounding name, you go, no, I was born in Philadelphia. No, we don't think so. We think you're born in Bristol. That's it. You're, you're part of the British Navy. If you're like, if we seize your stuff, we can seize you, and we, you can join the British Navy now. Wacky fun that. America protests and said this is totally inappropriate. We don't, we don't accept this. You can't do this. Especially after they started sitting just outside of New York Harbor. The British Navy... Uh, basically did a, a, a flotilla around New York Harbor, and any ship leaving, they just attacked and said, do you have stuff, do you have contraband? Hey, you look British, you're part of the British Navy. In American territorial waters, within sight of, of New York, America's like, you, you, you realize this is tantamount to war. And Britain's like, no, we have to control our trade with you. You're all we have. And you're killing your golden goose. How smart is this? This is dumb. No politician's going to do that today, right? <laughs> No politician is going to say, I don't know, let's see, middle class is supporting the United States economy, let's cut the middle class. Nobody's going to do that. Nobody's going to shoot the, the thing that's keeping them going. That would be dumb. To help keep pressure on America so that we would feel dependent on British trade, England actually started stirring up trouble out west, which is a funky concept. When you think about it, you just go, this is bad diplomacy. It's like you're wanting America to trade with you, so you're making things hard on America. You don't think they're going to notice that it's you doing this? Racky fun history. They began accusing America of breaking treaties with Native American tribes. Well, because remember there was a whole treaty that this was going to be Indian territory, and now Americans are moving into it. They go, well, yeah, but number one, you broke the treaties. You know, 
The treaties were made by England, not America, and then England broke the treaties by giving the land to America. You can't, you can't say, tell you what, Caleb, I promise to give you five bucks if you help me with my deck. By the way, um, I, I turned my house over to Christy. Um, Christy, it's your deck, enjoy. And you walk over and you go, Christy, where's my five bucks? She goes, I, I don't owe you five dollars. You said, I was paid five dollars off of this deck and you're supposed to give it to me. She goes, nobody ever said anything to me about you. Kevin gave me the deck. Kevin, make Kevin give you the five bucks. But here's the thing. You would think that the cable would be able to track with that. When you're dealing with Native Americans, all they know is some European made a treaty with me and these Europeans are not fulfilling them. You're all British five minutes ago. <laughs> you broke your treaty. You guys agreed. Americans are like, we never agreed, which sounds like you're being, <laughs> but we didn't. It wasn't ours. It's tacky all the way around. So England began giving the Native Americans weapons and goods and ammunition and through Canada, because it's still British territory up here. So they funneled all the stuff through Canada down in here and said, here, go. Pick on the Americans from the West. Make them have to keep working with us to, to get stuff because they're constantly having to deal with you guys. Good plan. Which leads to something called Tecumseh's War, if you've ever heard of that. If you haven't, that's a darn shame because it's important. Tecumseh's War escalates into violence. Since Quantawada has built up uh, this religious movement going on, um, and it's based on standing against anything European. European clothes, European religion, European food, European weapons. So... Is Quantawada in that European looking outfit? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's an earlier picture. But yes. But, so it, it actually undermines a little bit of their efforts because they're like, we won't use things like guns. Like, and the Europeans all go, okay. But, but anything European is bad. It's evil. It's inherently evil. In fact, they even had their own community of several thousand people that came together in the junction of the Wabash and Tippecanoe rivers in the Indiana Territory that the whites refer to as Prophetstown. This big, I mean, it's 3,000 people. That's a pretty big community. They're all coming together to, to, uh, to listen to his visions. Um, but that area was part of a generally sparsely populated area that, that uh, new territorial governor, William Henry Harrison, needed for his settlers. It's like, we, we're growing. We're getting more and more people here. I need this territory. I can't just encroach on Indian lands, so what do I do? He called together all the various tribal leaders and said, tell you what, I will pay you if you'll, pay, if you'll give me three million acres. And so the Miami Native American tribe gave him three million acres. He paid good money for it. Um, all the different tribes signed off on it. He's like, there aren't that many Native Americans on this land. If you guys would move off of it, we'll move our people in here and build cities and things. Kamsa, just, just like, that's horrible. How could you ever sell this land to the whites? This, you know, it's, it's just, no matter how many tribes agreed on it, it's just, it's just plain wrong. He preached to William Henry Harrison, and he said, the only way to stop this evil is for all the red men to unite in claiming an equal right in the land. That is how it was at first, and should be still. The land never was divided, but was for the use of everyone. Any tribe could go to an empty land and make a home there. And if they left, another tribe could come there and make a home. No groups among us have the right to sell, even to one another. And surely not to outsiders. Sell a country. Why, why not sell the air, the clouds, the great sea, as well as the earth? 
So, how would you respond to that? What? <laughs> I've, just, I've just seen that quoted a lot out of context. Mm -hmm. How would you respond? You're William Henry Harrison. Well, because I didn't need to pay him off at all. <laughs> we just move into the place where they're not. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, well, first off, that only works when it's really sparsely populated and there's ample resources. I mean, if you actually have densely populated, you could not do that here in, in Peoria, could you? If somebody moves out of the house, I'll just go and sit in it, and I'll just live there. Right? That works. No, it doesn't work. None of you want to live like that. It, this only works when you've got tons of land and people can move around freely and move away and move in and move out and move out. That, that works. It creates sort of might makes right. I mean, well, of course, the more powerful tribes one is going to... Well, yeah, because they've been fighting over this stuff all along. I, I appreciate what Tecumseh is saying, but that's not true. Native American tribes have been fighting over land all the time. They've been fighting over resources all the time. And that's the thing is, if you go, well... It, it, if you move out of your house, I'll just move in. Because I like her house, and my house is getting too small for my family. It's really getting too small for my family. You're not moving out. Actually, we're bigger than you. Why don't I just take your house? I mean, that's pretty much where that where that goes. Secondly, is that though Tecumseh argues that, it's like, ah, oh, we should all be united. We should all be of one mind. He's like, really, it's just his mind. His biggest opponents were not the white people but the other Native American tribes, who all said, we, uh, we all signed the treaty. We got paid really good money for this, and uh, we're, we're fine with it. We actually like Henry, 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 William Henry Harrison. He's, he seems to be a classy guy, and uh, we're fine with this. They said, all right, I will annihilate any tribe that doesn't agree with me. I will wipe you off the face of the earth. Yeah, because he hates white people that much. He gave a speech to the Creek Indians uh, and, and it presented a slightly different take on it. He says, let the white race perish. They seize your land, they corrupt your women, they trample your dead. Back, whence they came, upon a trail of blood, they must be driven back, back, aye, into the, into the great water whose accursed ways brought them to our shores. Burn their dwellings, destroy their stock, slay their wives and children. The red man owns the country, and the pale face must never enjoy it. War now, war forever, war upon the living, war upon the dead. Take their very corpses from the graves. Our country must give no rest to the white man's bones. Perky fellow. Yeah. But it's also kind of... And this, one's, this is the part that jumped out at me. It's like, the red man owns the country. You go, Didn't you just say nobody owns the country? Did you just mean you don't own the country? Oh, we own it, but you don't own it. As I say here, one of the problems with idealism is that too often it can be made to say whatever you want it to say. You can, even if it goes completely against the ideals, you just got finished preaching. The only thing that matters sometimes to the idealist is that they are perceived as the idealist. We have the ideals, and you guys are the bad guys. But what you just said goes flat out against what you just said over here. It doesn't matter, because we're the good guys, and so we get to do that. It's an inherent danger of this. Even use Christianity as an example of why you can't trust the, the white man. I, I love this. This is an interesting theology. How can we have confidence in the white people? When Jesus Christ came upon the earth, you killed him, the son of your own God. You nailed him up. You thought he was dead, but you were mistaken. And only after you thought you'd killed him did you worship him and start killing those who would not worship him. What kind of a people is this for us to trust? But that's the way you perceive Christianity. 
which means that he's actually heard about this. He's actually heard different things. He's heard bits and pieces of And yet, there's some key issues here that ideally are worth talking to him about. It's like, you thought he was dead, but you were mistaken. No, no, he was dead. He was dead, dead, and then he came back again. By the way, I'm British. I had nothing to do with it. It was the Romans that killed him. You know how there's the Miami and the Lenape and the Shawnee? Well, I'm Lenape, and it was the Shawnee that killed him. But the idea of saying, you didn't start worshiping him until after you killed him, so apparently you only worship dead people, and I don't want to be dead people. I can't trust you. Nobody should be able to trust you. So, 1810 starts escalating into violence. Tecumseh brought 400 warriors in full war paint to meet with Harrison, warning that the treaty would not be honored by their tribe or any other tribe in the Confederation. No, we're going to stand against you and we're going to go to war. Harrison said, well, wait a minute, everybody signed it. Everybody was cool. What happened? Everybody else was fine except you guys. And now you guys are having a problem? He also argued the Lenape didn't own the land. It was the Miami. You don't get to tell me that you don't get to tell me that I have to close Dixon Mounds. It wasn't your tribe that we're studying. You killed the tribe we're studying. That's by the way, anybody remember that with Dixon Mounds? There's a bunch of Native American tribes came up and said this is an affront to Native Americans, you have to close because Dixon Mounds is a museum that used to show a cutaway from a, a Native American burial site. They said you're disgracing our, our tribe's remains. You can't disgrace Native Americans like this. And they forced them to, to, to change all that. And and Dixon Mouse is like, but, but you're not that, you're not that tribe. You're not even part of this. You killed every. You guys appear to have killed everybody in this tribe. But no. Anyway, so the Miami said, "We're fine with this. We were fine with the deal, and it was our land to give." Tecumseh said, "No, no, 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 no. All red men are red men. We're all part of one big group. There's all white men are all one big group. Red men are all one big group." Therefore, the strongest red man should lead everybody. Since I'm the strongest red man, I speak for every red man on the planet. Harrison said, well, if that were true, why don't you all speak the same language? <laughs> if you're all the same, why don't you have the same language? And why don't you, say, why don't you have the same political conclusions? Everybody but you th seems to think one way. I don't think you're as united as you say that you are. And I don't think I believe you. So Tecumseh says that... So Tecumseh started speaking in Lenape to his, his, his warriors. They all start readying for battle and everything. And Harrison had no idea what was going on. But there were other Miami uh, leaders and other, other different uh, tribes there. And they all leaned over to Harrison. They're like, you need to stop them. You need to stop them. He's saying bad things. And so Harrison had all of his officers come up and take their weapons out. Not, not point them at anybody. Just take their weapons out and cock them. And so Tecumseh backed down and all of his warriors ran away. But tense moment there, it sense. Tecumseh goes north to Canada, says, hey, British, you want to have an alliance? And if you sit there and you go, well, but aren't the British white? Tecumseh even went flat out and said, oh, we'll kill them later. But we don't need to tell them that. He goes, wait, isn't this exactly the sort of crap that you're accusing the white people of doing? Making treaties that they fully intend to break? And by the way, you're standing against the one white guy that we know of that didn't do that. Harrison's a class act. He was actually paying good money and honoring his treaties. And then he went south to garner support from other tribes, but the only other tribe that had any interest in it at all was the Creek. The, the Cherokee went, you're crazy. You know, this is showing up. We're fine. I don't know what your problem is. While he was gone, 
Tenskwatawak armed the community and started attacking settlers. By the way, he decided European weapons are okay. So he started doing that. Once the British started sending them weapons, they're like, okay, that part is okay. So they started attacking settlers along the Missouri. And Harrison brought troops to Prophetstown and said, all right, we're done with this. I've been trying to talk to you. Tenskwatawak, you and I need to sit down and talk about this before this erupts into something ugly. And Tenskwatawak agreed. He's like, all right, I will meet with you in the morning. And there's a truce until then. So Harrison's like, okay, our, our troops are encamped outside of Prophetstown. That night, a vision told Tenskwatawak that the best way to beat Harrison is to murder him in his sleep. You know, because the vision told him that. Um, so they tried to sneak in, but they got caught by, uh, the, the assassins got caught by sentries. And what's interesting is one of the one of the people who led the assassins in had actually been uh, uh, had actually been working with the the Americans for a while, but then uh, went over to the Shawnee. And uh, when when Harrison later on talked with them, he's like, you know, I, I went over to the Shawnee because I don't think you can be trusted, and I think this is the only way to save them. And then Harrison's like, okay, pardon this guy. He's true believer. He did what he thought he was trying to do. He thought this was an act of war. Okay. I like Harrison! It's one of these where you go, wow, I really hate that squad a lot, I really like Harrison. Anyway, first thing the next morning, the American troops find themselves attacked on all sides by uh, 10th Squad West troops. You go, well, there was a truce. Yeah, but we used the truce as a time to set up a, an attack against you guys. And so, at first light, we start attacking, you know, attacking you and killing you by surprise. Harrison troops uh, repulsed the attack, but... Lost as many men as they killed and suffered twice as many wounded. And it was nasty. But, repulse attack and all the all Tenskwatawa's guys were fleeing into the woods. And Harrison ordered uh, Prophetstown to be burned to the ground. I say abandoned. There's actually one little old lady that was there that was too sick to leave. And so Harrison had his men take her to a hospital to take care of her. He's a nice guy! I like this guy! But he's like, but this whole Prophetstown thing? Yeah, this is done. We're not doing this. Again, we're not allowing this. this. I tried. I tried really hard. No. Tenskwatawa loses all credibility. Because he's like, I had visions that this is what's good, what we should do. And a vision said that if that we should kill Harrison in the night. The vision said that we were all going to be fine. He, he, he made special medicine signs on his, on his guys. And he said, nobody can hurt you now because I made special medicine signs on you. And then they got killed. And I'm like, even Tenskwatawa's people were like, you know, I think you're kind of a doofus. And so he popped on off to, to Canada to fight for the British against the Americans, because they're about the only people who would take it. No, Tecumseh comes back from the south, because this whole time he's been out down with the creek, and he comes back and he goes, what did we do? My, my idiot drunken brother led raids on the settlers, and Harrison took out Prophetstown, and it's all over? No! So he promised to kill every white person in the territory, man, women, children, as nastily as he could for this indignity, sparking what was called Tecumseh's War, but also what's called the Creek War as a result. And this is the thing that most people don't realize. A lot of people even forget that we had a War of 1812. What most people don't realize is that throughout the, the beginning part of the, of the 1800s, really from like 18, 1810 through the, the 1840s, America was at war on multiple fronts all the time. We were fighting everybody all over the place. We just don't know how to think about it like that. Because in 1812, we declared war on Britain, saying, okay, this whole impressment of Americans, this ends. So, 
How would you summarize this period in history? And I know that some of this doesn't have directly to do with church history, but it sure should give you some background for a couple of things that are coming up in the next couple of decades, next couple of weeks. How would you summarize this era, this era in history? What's going on? Morrison and Wilberforce and Harrison, and you got people like Burr and Hamilton who are both being little twerps. You got people like Tenskwatawa who's like a petty little man who gets some power. I will at least give Tecumseh credit. No, I don't think he's a petty little man. I just think he's a belligerent jerk. But Tenskwatawa, and I'm like, you're not even like you're not even a belligerent jerk. You're just a petty drunk that got power. So yeah, and you got like, you've got people that are doing really awesome stuff and people are doing really bad stuff. What? And I, I find it absolutely fascinating, and, and I know we talked about it, but I find it absolutely fascinating that God was able to use even things like the East India Company. Even in the midst of all this stuff to bring things about, God is going to use even Tenskwatawa and, and the nativist revival that came from that to reach Native Americans with the gospel. Not today, but stick around. But I mean, there are things that God is going to use to say, you know, I can use even this to accomplish things. So yeah, there are these bright shining lights that, that God can use, and then there's these really dark things that God can use. God used the Zong massacre to help bring about the end of slavery. God is able to use even the most horrific things to do something powerfully good. So it's, it's, a, it's a matter of stopping and going, We're, this is an, an extremely chaotic time. And God is able to use this in the next couple of years to change people's hearts for, for him and, and thousands come to know the Lord in large part because they come out of this chaos. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you so much for everything that's gone before. We know that we know that everything we enjoy today, everything everything that we consider a blessing, has its context, has its basis, and so much of it has blood behind it. Lord, I, I pray, help us to Help us not to be morbid, but help us to be appreciative. And help us to remember that we also have the opportunity to take stands. Maybe we don't shed blood. Maybe we do. But I pray, Lord, help us to realize that 200 years from now, people will be living in the world that we made today. So I pray, Lord, help us to be your instruments, used by your hands, to build your world the way that honors you. We give this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.